0: spirit make these words clear from Matthew and help us to delight in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we go through hard times, and we all do, it helps to have close friends who hurt when we hurt, uh, who support you in in pains. Solidarity is willingness to give support when another person is in a difficult position or needs affection. Solidarity is I'm with you in this because I care about you. Solidarity is a gift of love. Back in 2015, eight-year-old Marley Pack uh, found out that she had a rare form of soft tissue cancer. Marley underwent exhausting chemotherapy and had to miss a lot of school. Additionally, Marley had to shave her head, and so she was a bit apprehensive about going back to school. Well, Marley's good friend, Cameron McLaughlin, wanted to show solidarity, so Cameron decided to shave her head. Uh, The Meridian Elementary School in Broomfield, Colorado, held an event called Be Bold, uh, Be Brave, Go Bald, and Cameron's head was shaved, and 80 students and some teachers followed suit, and there's a picture of Cameron and Marley simultaneously rubbing one another's shaved heads. The Be Bold, Be Brave, Go Bald campaign uh, event raised over $25,000 for childhood um, cancer research. And Marley told Today.com, I didn't think that many people would shave their heads, but I feel good about going back to school and not being the only bald one. Well, the solidarity of Marley's friends brought her a certain level of comfort and confidence, but their solidarity couldn't cure Marley of cancer. On January 15th of this year, it was confirmed that chemo wasn't working for Marley. When offered a clinical trial, Marley asked, do I have to go to chemo, do I have to get chemo, and will it cure me? Well, chemo was inevitable, and a cure was unattainable. So Marley told her parents she didn't want chemo. About a month later, Marley died. The solidarity of Marley's friends and family was unable to save her from the ravages of cancer. Uh, But there is a greater solidarity that does save. And it saves from the ravages of sin and death. Brothers and sisters, Jesus became one of us and took our sin into himself, bore the ravages of sin that we deserved and saved us to live for him. And the solidarity of Jesus Christ with us assures us of the unmatched love of God. Here's what I want to show you from Matthew 3, 13 through 17. God's beloved Son and righteous servant assumed our sin and saved us, so that in his solidarity we would become God's beloved children and righteous servants. God's beloved son and righteous servant assumed our sin and saved us so that in his solidarity we would become God's beloved children and righteous servants. And I want to to try to answer two big questions and then afterwards tie it all together. First question, why did Jesus need to be baptized by John the Baptist? And second question, how does the baptism of Jesus benefit us believers? So first question, why did Jesus need to be baptized by John the Baptist? And it's a good question, considering that Jesus didn't have any sin. Why was he baptized with John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Even John the Baptist was confused. So let me try to unpack that a bit. John's baptism, though similar to Christian baptism, is not the same thing, especially considering it was not done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and considering that in the book of Acts, those baptized by John needed to be baptized and receive Christian baptism at their conversion. John's baptism was an Old Testament baptism and preparatory, and not the sign and seal of the new covenant, so John's ministry eventually faded. John said in verse 11, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. So we'd expect that Jesus is coming. Well, what happens in verse 13? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And the verb is actually present tense. The English has it in past tense. It's in present tense in the Greek. Matthew uses the present tense to better pull you into the scene to make Christ's arrival livelier and more dramatic. At the end of chapter 2, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus reside in the city of Nazareth in the district of Galilee. In chapter 3, Jesus is about 30 years old and comes from Galilee to John for baptism. Matthew established that John came to prepare the way for the Lord, and now Jesus' dramatic baptism implies the Lord has come Here's the glory of the Lord revealed. That's what it's saying. And and this is an amazing moment. But still, Jesus wasn't a sinner. So why a baptism of repentance? Verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? John was confused. It seems a bit backwards, doesn't it? When you think about this, shouldn't Jesus be baptizing John? John? And it's a good question. Peter had a similar reaction in the upper room when Jesus was going to wash his feet. Well, John was aware of his own sinfulness and guilt and need of repentance and cleansing. Verse 14 is more literally, I have need to be baptized by you. John was also aware of the supremacy of Christ. The greater should baptize the lesser, right? Not the other way around. John was also aware that Christ would be baptized with with a superior baptism, a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John was confused by Jesus coming to him for baptism. So what's going on? Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Jesus knew it had to happen and commanded John to baptize him at that moment. Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting. Jesus was telling him, John, it's appropriate for you to baptize me. There's something bigger going on here, John. And so John consented. Two things about that. One, consented is the same Greek word as let it be so, used by Jesus. So Jesus commanded John, and what did John do? He obeyed. He followed suit. Two, consent is present tense. So again, Matthew is pulling us into the scene in order to feel the drama unfold. But again, what's going on? Jesus said, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. How does John, baptizing Jesus, fulfill all righteousness? Well, Jesus doesn't explain it. And Matthew doesn't explain it. So, we have to go outside of this text to other scriptures to try to get a handle on what's happening. And I submit to you three points that explain what's happening. Number one, Jesus's solidarity with his people. Two, Jesus's anointing with the Spirit and empowerment for his messianic work. And three, Jesus' attaboy from his father. Number one, Jesus's solidarity with his people. Now, Jesus had already descended to earth and assumed human frailty. Uh, But his baptism was further solidarity with his people in their sin, guilt, and misery. First, you have to understand that Jesus had no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 beautifully exhibits the sinlessness of Jesus as well as his solidarity with his people. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was baptized by John, not because of his sin and guilt, but to show solidarity with his people in their sin and guilt. He was beginning to take upon himself our sin. William Hendrickson expressed this truth in provocative terms. He wrote this, The objection may be raised that the water of baptism symbolized the removal of filth, that is, sin, and that since Jesus was sinless, he did not need to be and could not properly be baptized. The answer is that he did, after all, have sin, namely, ours. Namely, ours. That's right. Jesus did have sin to bear. Ours. Jesus did have guilt to bear, ours. His baptism was an act of loving solidarity with the people that he came to save. He was beginning his curative work. Listen to what God said about the solidarity of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus the Messiah was numbered among the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. That's solidarity. With Isaiah 53, 11 and 12 in mind, Dr. Leon Morris explained Matthew 3:15 like this, "But in this gospel, fulfill is often used of the fulfillment of prophecy. And this is surely in mind here. We should probably understand righteousness as in Isaiah 53:11. So Dr. Morris linked Matthew 3:15 that we're looking at with Isaiah 53:11. Dr. Morris continued. Matthew is not averse to referring to Isaiah, and a reference to the righteousness of the servant would suit the present passage admirably. Jesus might well have been up there in front standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, please hear this, instead, he was down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he would in due course accomplish. That is a wonderful thought. Jesus down there with the sinners, showing solidarity with the people that he came to save. That's wonderful. Dr. Morris added, Matthew pictures Jesus as dedicating himself to the task of making sinners righteous, an appropriate beginning of his public ministry. You know what? This is why we love Jesus. This is why we love him, He identifies with us in our need. Our need. And He proves, provides rather, in Himself what we need. He identifies with us in our need and then He provides in Himself what we need. One author rightly concluded, In being baptized, the Messiah, God's Son, shows His solidarity with mankind, whom He came to save, a sinner by imputation among sinners. But at the same time, as God's agent for salvation, he brings it about that people have the righteousness God demands of them, but which they themselves could not produce or effect for themselves. Okay, Jesus shows solidarity with sinners. Then takes upon himself their sin. And at the same time, lives a perfectly righteous life under the law in order to earn for His people the perfect righteousness they could not obtain on their own. Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, it sets us up for where we're going in Matthew 4. Well, what happens in Matthew 4? This is so interesting and awesome connection. Jesus keeps the covenant of works in the wilderness as. Israel failed to do, and he proves to be the perfectly righteous Christ and Son of God. Indeed, he proves to be the perfect Israel. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' baptism displays his solidarity with us, but it also marks the beginning of his messianic work to fulfill all righteousness for us. Number two, Jesus' anointing with the Spirit and empowerment for his messianic work. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, there's that word again. Matthew alerts us to something big is coming. Behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and and coming to rest on him. That's big. That was his ordination, His ordination, the beginning of his work as the Christ. Now, we could spend time on the phrase, he went up from the water. Lots of debate on that, okay? Was Jesus immersed or was he sprinkled or was he poured upon? All are possible according to the language. We just don't know. And that's not what Matthew emphasizes. Matthew says, behold, to emphasize what happens after Jesus went up from the water. So, like a Christmas gift box that is open to reveal, hopefully, the expensive gift inside, God opened the heavens to give Jesus and John a glorious look beyond the created universe to what Calvin said was a symbol of the divine presence. Like a dove, the Spirit of God descended and rested on Jesus. Jesus saw it and John 1:32 and 34 confirmed that John saw it. The spirit's descent upon Jesus confirmed for John that Jesus was the Christ and for Jesus it empowered him. It empowered him. Jesus's divine nature, we have to be clear about this, had no need of empowerment. None whatsoever. But his human nature did, therefore God sent the Spirit to anoint him and to empower him to do what he had come to do. What great love. The Father was caring for the Son and ensuring that he would have the strength that he needed to achieve the eternal covenant of redemption. Christ means anointed one. And Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Heidelberg 31 helps us understand this anointing, this Christ language. It asks, why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Why? Well, listen carefully to the answer because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the father and our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Okay, so his baptism was his ordination to begin his messianic work as prophet, priest and king. And and guess what? As we study Matthew and continue, we'll watch as Jesus works for us in all three of these messianic roles, prophet, priest, and king. It's coming. It's wonderful. Here are are several significant connections then between Jesus' anointing and particularly the book of Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 and try to see the connection There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay. Jesse was King David's father. The Davidic dynasty was cut down to a stump. Not looking hopeful for the Davidic dynasty. But God had made promises He made promises to David, and so one shoot broke forth to bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon the promised Davidic king. Jesus was baptized by John in confirmation of his Davidic sonship and kingship. Now here's another amazing connection. The nation of Israel was typological of Jesus Christ, and the New Testament proves it. Isaiah 50, in Isaiah 50, or 41, rather, God says, About the nation of Israel now, you are my servant, I have chosen you. Then in Isaiah 42, 1, God says this: Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who's that prophecy about? Easy. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And Matthew proves it. In Matthew 12, Matthew applies Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3, not to Israel, but to Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's true servant, God's true chosen one, the true one in whom God's soul delights, and God put his Holy Spirit upon Jesus right here at Jesus' baptism. The Old Testament connections here are striking. Now, here's another connection with Isaiah, and this one's a doozy. I love this. Jesus is in his hometown, Nazareth, in the synagogue, and he stands up and he takes the scroll and he reads this from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he gives the scroll back and he sits down. And so what's happening? All eyes in the synagogue fixed right on him. I mean, I, don't, I wonder what that moment would have felt like and then... As all eyes are on him, Jesus says this today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Drop the mic. I mean, that that is awesome. Jesus meant that he had been anointed with the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel and to save, and that's what he was doing at that moment. Acts 10 38 is relevant. Peter is preaching. And he mentions John's baptism and then he says this, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Do you understand why John the Baptist needed to baptize Jesus? At his baptism, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power and ordained him to his messianic work his baptism signified that god was with jesus and something amazing is coming well matthew writes about this he puts this stuff down on paper for us to connect jesus of nazareth back to covenant and messianic prophecies of the old testament Matthew connects Jesus back to the one plan of redemption for the one people of God, which was unfolding throughout the Old Testament and is now, in Matthew, exploding in full gospel color in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's right here at the beginning of the New Testament. The mention of Abraham, and particularly David, is hugely significant to Matthew's trajectory. It's covenantal. Again, John T. Rhodes' quote is fitting. Covenant is the theme that links the different books of the Bible to make them one united story, blazing through the Old Testament like a firework before exploding into full color in the coming of Christ. In the coming of Christ. Matthew is telling you all about the coming of Christ in order to show you that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all God's covenant gospel promises. The the fact that the Spirit of God alighted on Jesus tells us not only that Jesus is God's Christ and God's Son promised in the covenants, but that Jesus is empowered by the Spirit to accomplish God's eternal covenant of redemption, God's eternal plan of salvation. He's the one. He's the one. His baptism says, Jesus, now is your time to shine. And what Jesus does and teaches after this, showcases Jesus fulfilling God's eternal covenant of redemption, his eternal plan of redemption. His baptism was his solidarity with his people and was his anointing with the Spirit and empowerment for his messianic work. Number three, Jesus' is attaboy from his Father. Verse 17 is epic. And behold, there's the word again, A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And the word said here is in the Greek present tense. Why does Matthew keep doing this? Present tense. We don't get it in the English, but it's there. Matthew's again using the present tense to pull us in to the drama of this moment. Now, sometimes movies, they have flashbacks, where a person remembers all kinds of past events which rapidly and chronologically flash on the screen, and the past, that flashback, is used to make sense of the present situation of that person in in the movie. Now, that should be happening for you as you hear verse 17. Old Testament covenants and promises And prophecies, the garden, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the Exodus, David, Solomon, the exile, the prophets, should flash in chronological order in your mind, helping you make sense of God's words in verse 17. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is what God's promise in Genesis 3.15 was all about, the arrival of God's promised son who would crush the head of satan this is like the moment now part of your flashback should be exodus 4 verses 21 and 22 and jeremiah 31 verse 9 where god refers to israel as his firstborn son interesting that language was typological of jesus christ god's beloved son Israel received adoption, but they were unfaithful. They broke covenant and God cast them out of the land. But when God sent his only begotten son, he was faithful. The son kept the covenant and obtained all the earth to graciously share with all of God's people. You have to remember that God promised Abraham and his offspring, Christ, his son, not a small piece of land, but the whole world, Romans 4.13. The whole world. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 through 16, God promised David a son. But remember, God said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Psalm 2, then, is a messianic psalm, and it says in verse 7, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then, Matthew, or I'm sorry, Acts 13, verse 33, Hebrews 1, verse 5, Hebrews 5, verse 5, all take Psalm 2, 7, and apply it directly to Jesus of Nazareth. So what does this amount to? God the Father gave God the Son One ginormous attaboy from heaven, which tells us exactly who Jesus of Nazareth is and exactly what Jesus of Nazareth came to do. And it marks the beginning of him doing it. So at this moment, we are watching God's covenant of redemption being fulfilled in Matthew's account. And here we see the Trinity the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together to achieve that great covenant of redemption. The the great English Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle said this, it was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. Matthew 3, 13-17 is one of the most explicit scriptures on the Trinity and affirms God's eternal covenant of redemption. The Father had designed redemption and was confirming the identity of Jesus as his beloved son and commissioning him to accomplish the redemption he designed in eternity. The Holy Spirit was anointing and empowering Jesus for that redemptive work. The the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was receiving the anointing and empowerment and favor of the Father in order to fulfill all righteousness and complete salvation by his merits alone for the glory of the Father. Let's try to tie some of this together a little bit more tightly. William Hendrickson said it beautifully. So far, we have heard about the son's request to be baptized and his actual baptism, thereby reaffirming his entire willingness to take upon himself and carry away the sin of the world. Also, about the Spirit's descent upon him qualifying him for a task so tremendous and sublime, it is altogether fitting that the voice of the Father's wholehearted approval and delight be added so that it may become clear that in the work of saving sinners, as in every divine work, the three are one. The three are always one. Why, beloved saints, do we care about the Trinity and the covenant of redemption? Why? Well, because these massive doctrines tell us this. Each person of the one triune God cares a lot about saving you and me because each person is lovingly active in saving us. The three persons of the Godhead are entirely united in their eternal plan of redemption. And right here at Jesus' baptism, we see each person advancing our redemption. The Father's pleasure in the Son, the Spirit's anointing and empowerment of the Son, the Son's obedience to the Father by the Spirit. It's beautiful. This is the triune God who loves you, brothers and sisters, and who, is, who has secured your redemption In Christ alone, solidarity is everything. It's everything. A little while after this epic moment, John the Baptist said this about Jesus, and we must say the same in order to be saved. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Can you see in Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you bearing witness that he is the Son of God? Why did Jesus need to be baptized by John the Baptist? Well, to fulfill all righteousness. That's what the book says, which I think includes these three things, to show solidarity with his people, to receive the anointing and empowerment of the Spirit for his messianic work, and to receive one big attaboy from his Father in heaven. So let me try to tie all of this together. How does the baptism of Jesus benefit us believers? Well, listen closely to what Ephesians 5, verse 1 says about us believers. Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Same word as verse 17. Believers are God's beloved children, and they're expected to imitate their father. And at the beginning of Romans, Paul writes to believers, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, and that's the same word as beloved in verse 17. Okay, So Jesus is the beloved son of God, and all believers united to him by grace through faith are adopted beloved children of God. How can that be? And here's the answer. God's beloved son and righteous servant, Jesus Christ, assumed our sin and saved us so that in his solidarity with us, we would become God's beloved children and righteous servants. His solidarity with us is our salvation and our adoption. For our sake, God made his own son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in God's son alone, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' baptism, it assures us that God's son climbed down here with us sinners Into our mess, affirmed his solidarity with us, took our sin and guilt upon himself, perfectly fulfilled the covenant of works for us, thus becoming our righteousness, died in our place, rescued us from God's wrath, and made us alive so that we could enjoy God's fatherly love and provision as beloved children and as thankful servants living to obey our father's really, really good and helpful family rules. That's what it's about. Marley Pack's friends could shave their heads in solidarity with Marley, but they couldn't cure her. Jesus Christ takes our cancer of sin and guilt into himself and through his solidarity with us becomes our cancer and our cure. And he cures us through a cross. He cures us through a cross. This is unprecedented love. Unprecedented. You don't find this anywhere else. And so I want to connect last week's message of guilt and repentance to this week's message of grace and forgiveness. I want to connect those. And I want to allow Dr. John Calvin to make the connection to give us at the end here our practical application. He says it so well. And so this is your comforting thought to take with you as you go. This is your your practical, hey, I can do something with this. Brothers and sisters, listen to what God has done for you in Christ and what it practically produces in us. Long quote, but stay with it. Though John, when he introduces the mention of the grace of God, exhorts men to repentance, yet it must not be forgotten that repentance, not less than the inheritance of the heavenly kingdom, is a gift of God. As he freely pardons our sins and delivers us by his mercy from the condemnation of eternal death, so also does he form us anew to his image that we may live unto righteousness. As he freely adopts us for his sons, so he regenerates us by his spirit that our life may testify that we do not falsely address him as our father. In like manner, Christ washes away our sins by His blood and reconciles our Heavenly Father to us by the sacrifice of His death. But at the same time, in consequence of our old man being crucified with Him and the body of sin destroyed, He makes us alive unto righteousness. The sum of the gospel is that God, through His Son, takes away our sins and admits us to fellowship with him, that we, denying ourselves and our own nature, may live soberly, righteously, and godly, and thus may exercise ourselves on earth in meditating on the heavenly life. Calvin nails it again. That is really helpful. The solidarity of Christ with us is what gives us life and makes us live like him. Jesus is our cure. Jesus is our new life. Jesus is our eternal life. Beloved children, beloved children, delight in the solidarity of Christ your Savior. Because of him, you are God's beloved uh, children and you are God's righteous servants.